This week's episode is kindly brought to you by our friends at Newzest. Today, we're highlighting the amazing people who use the Newzest product, such as the professional footballer, Lauren Barnes, who joins me in the studio today. Hey, Lauren, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us. So being healthy and fit is so important for an athlete like yourself. Tell us a little bit about what well-being means for you and even more importantly, mental health when it comes to fitness and exercise. I've been playing professionally now for 10 years up in Seattle, Washington. And wellness is incredibly important. I think in particularly the mental side, which I don't think is actually spoken about a lot in sport. Um, we always think about the physical exertion that we um, give. But yeah, I think particularly this year with the pandemic, um, going into my 10th year as a pro, I was pretty much physically and mentally depleted just from life, the pandemic and playing for so long with injuries. And this off season was about two months long and I got to reconnect, recenter myself and really work on my wellness, my mental health, and I feel like a completely different athlete and human. My overall wellness feels so much better and I feel a lot happier right now. So I think I finally got to take the time and actually understand, so I'm going to be 33 this year, that we need to continue to make this a priority, especially your mental side of things. And mm -hmm. I think as athletes, it ends up becoming second best to your physical and what you're exerting on the field, but how incredibly important it is and connected to our performances so I was so happy to be able to reconnect find myself within that again and just really think about the importance it is for me to perform we always think of ourselves as just athletes but it spilled into my personal life and I think it's incredible to get back on track and feel more balanced both in my sport life and my personal life and that balance is really important thanks so much for joining us on the podcast Lauren Really great to hear your story and yeah, we'll catch you again next time. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And like I said, representing the women in News S is incredible for me and I'm um, just happy to be able to share my story. If you love the sound of News S, please do check out newses.us forward slash PBN20 to get 20% off your first order. And as always, if you like this podcast, please don't forget to comment, like and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Hope you enjoy the show. We're trying to build a platform to help people, but we're competing against a lot of other platforms. And even for the businesses that we want to attract and for the people that just feel so natural, like these are the people that would care about, we have to figure out, we have to compete and our product needs to get good enough. When we started, we didn't have any money. I bootstrapped the whole thing for a year and a half and it was really painful. And I kind of felt like I needed to go through that pain to really come out the other side, believing that I could do this, that I wanted to do this, that I was prepared to do this. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Picasso. A pleasure to have you here. Really a pleasure to be here. And it's an honor, Robbie. Thanks for having me on your show. Hi, my name is Vikas Garg. I am the founder and CEO of A Billion. We're a social media platform and social network that's helping people around the world live more sustainably and create social impact. So before we get started and talk about all your incredible achievements of recent years, let's go back in time and please do tell me your vegan and plant-based story. Where did you discover this lifestyle? Where did it all begin for you? It all began 40 years ago. I turned 40 this year, earlier this year, and uh, my mom and dad I'm originally from India uh, and a part of India that is known historically for, for being mostly vegetarian. It's called Rajasthan and uh, most people know it for deserts and elephants and, and things like that and little palaces and whatnot. And uh, yeah, and so that's where I was born. And so I was born into a vegetarian family and that was 40 years ago. And along the way, uh, I discovered my love and passion for animals and that became kind of a lifelong learning journey for me and along that path i went vegan and um and here we are what was the kind of shift for you from a vegetarian lifestyle because obviously you know uh, it depends on i guess where your family but position whether it was spiritual or religious reasons or ethical reasons how did you make that connection because obviously a lot of people who are born into vegetarian families they believe that 
they are actually doing something really good for the world, which they are, um, and they don't realize that there is more that can be done. You know, people are unaware of what happens with cows and chickens and they were not educated about these things. What was that sort of like jump? Was it a documentary? Was it something a friend said? How did you kind of connect that? You know, really from from the time that I was a kid, I loved animals. And my mother taught me how to be very compassionate to animals, to insects, to bugs, to ants. So, you know, I was obsessed with animals and insects and I was a little bug lover. But the funny thing is like, so we moved, I was four years old when we moved to America. And in India as vegetarians, like we ate mostly fruits and vegetables and grains, right? And it wasn't until we moved to America and I, specifically New York City that I discovered things like pizza and bagels with cream cheese and everything with butter, you know, and just like this sort of more whole plant-based vegetarian diet shifted to a very, very dairy-based diet. And we didn't even, we didn't even think of it. We didn't even recognize it. We just accepted it. And it was, of course, it was delicious, right? And then we, of course, as we were growing up in America, we also like, you know, uh, besides besides just the food that we ate, you know, we we, we started wearing clo- like nice, cl- nicer clothing or like fashionable clothing. And as teenagers, we love, my brother and I both loved leather and didn't really even think about it. And the funny thing is that I started going to animal rights rallies when I was like eight, nine, 10 years old in New York. I went to my first pedo rally outside of a fur shop uh, and I was I was probably around eight years old when that happened. So, but it just didn't really connect, right? It didn't connect the leather part, didn't connect the dairy part, just as you said. And it was a couple of things that just, that happened. And for me, they all kind of happened at the same time. In 2008, I got a dog and that changed my life forever. Just having this animal that I had formed this extraordinary connection with. In 2008, both my parents got really sick and I started really thinking about like, well, what is the role of food in, like, why does my mother have cancer? Why does my father have heart problems, right? I watched Earthlings for the first time. And, uh, and you know, it just, it blew me away. The whole thing just blew me away. And I had no idea. Uh, and it just overnight for me, it was, it became really obvious that these ideas that I had around dairy even or leather were just so misplaced. I was baffled because something that's revealed in that film is just how much animal slaughter and how much animal trade there is in a place like India, where you think because of religious preferences, cows are revered, but India is one of the world's largest exporters of beef. They just don't call water buffaloes cows, but they sell them as cows to the rest of the world, right? So it was just really, I remember watching that film and it was just confounding. And I think probably for like a lot of us that are in this movement, it was really, uh, it was kind of a visceral reaction, an overnight thing. And, and I swore that I would, you know, I would, I would do everything that I could to, uh, to, to, to just completely, you know, become vegan. Three primary life forces exist on this planet. Nature. animals and humankind. We are the earthlings. I count it as probably one of the defining two or three, even as a vegetarian, Right. That's a funny thing is even as a vegetarian, I think I count it as one of the two or three defining steps and tra- like steps in my life that I took that really brought perspective and a whole new sort of a new world to me. It's incredible. My it's similar to my own personal journey. Earthlings was the catalyst for my shift. I think if I hadn't seen Earthlings, I don't think I would be sat here with you today. I would never have dreamt I'd be a professional vegan <laughs> 10 years ago. I always laugh about it that, you know, if you had said to me, I'd be a professional vegan advocate, um, I would have laughed in your face. I would have, I would have thought no way. I grew up in Africa eating, you know, uh, animals with every meal, you know, steak for breakfast and several chicken breasts uh, in a sitting. 
it was quite normal to me. And I often talk about the unlocking of realization. That realization is something that is latent within the universe, within ourselves, within our consciousness, the awareness of what is. But through art, the artistry of words and script writing, which is the magic of earthlings. Yeah. Obviously, the images yeah. are terrifying and traumatic. But the script is what unlocks that realization in the minds of the audience. Because obviously, we know deep down that humans don't treat animals well. And we all know that. Even probably, you know, from our early teens, we experience some kind of animal abuse when we see it out in the world. But we don't feel a part of it. We feel, you know, we're good people. We're not eating this type of animal. We don't eat dogs. We don't eat cats. We must be good people. Not thinking that, well, cats, sorry, cows and chickens and pigs are also animals as well. And they are just as deserving of our love, like, you know, our cat friends and our dog friends. And it's interesting, you talked about, you know, having a dog and that creating that shift within you. And I hear the story over and over again, how people have a companion animal come into their home and they start to form a loving bond with this sentient being that thinks and feels and dreams and cries and gets excited and feels fear just like us and what that does in my mind and what i have i believe is it solidifies the awareness that animals are individuals that they are no longer this sort of like disconnected massive sort of flesh that we can just sort of pick on and whenever we choose that as individuals like us they are worthy of love and respect and i think that's the catalyst for me is that is the bonds it's the it's the connections earthling is the catalyst earthlings like documentaries are the catalyst but that loving relationship with a sentient being a furry sentient being is the path to ahimsa right which is obviously you know what we live our lives by um i'm just interested in sort of your religious and spiritual background because obviously you mentioned how cows are revered in India, but then, you know, they are also, as you say, water buffaloes, which are cows, it's just a slightly different species. But also that you see cows wandering in the streets, very neglected, um, eating plastic bags. And, you know, there seems to be a disconnect in Indian culture between this, you know, revelatory sort of nature of cows, but then also how cows are, are treated. There's obviously less factory farms in India than they are in the Western world, you know, but it's coming. There are factory farms appearing, aren't there? And they are growing in numbers. Is there, you know, from your family and your sort of connections there, is there this sort of bipolar nature of an awareness of the cow? Are things changing or, or, or do you, or do you think there's a lot of work to be done still? Oh, sure. No, look, uh, I think that the, the, first of all, right, the, the challenge in, in a place like India, people, India has the world's largest population of vegetarians, but they're actually very concentrated all in sort of, you know, one region of Western and Northwestern India. The rest of India, for by and large, are, are, are people who are meat eaters and love fish and, and things like that. So, of course, you've got 750 million people that actually eat meat fish, etc. So there's a whole industry around that. It, I, I, it's, I don't even think it's about factory farms coming. They're probably some of the worst factory farms in the world there, but you know, they're not necessarily, you're not going to see pigs and you're not going to see cows. You're going to see chickens, right? And a lot and a huge, massive amount of chicken consumption uh, that's happening in India. Likewise, of course, there's this, you know, propaganda led view, uh, you know, and, and religion to some degree has fueled this and religious propaganda over the years has fueled this of the role of the cow and that the cow is sacred, but the cow is here to also give us this gift of, of, it, of its milk. And that is very, very, very deeply rooted in Indian traditions and religion and our religious practices. You know, if you read the literature and you go back in time, you'll see like this idea of, of using animals for whether it's for food or for, for other things has been actually a very politicized sort of uh, in propaganda tactic within religions and sort of the, the rise and fall of various different religions in India, including Buddhism and Hinduism and how they kind of, you know, clashed with one another. So unfortunately, people have, in India tend to have a very romantic view of the cow, as you said, which doesn't actually show up in the treatment of the animal you know, as you, of course, also correctly pointed out, and dairy is a very, very, very big business in India. So, uh, you know, you're going to see you're going to see a lot of these practices is just what the what ends up happening is you don't people in cities don't see this, you know, the the sort of the so wealthier and more educated social classes. There's a huge disconnect between where their food comes from, 
what actually happens behind the scenes, right, to get it there. And, you know, and, and then their understanding is sort of this romanticized view of like a man with a pail in a village with a cow. And, and that's just not the way that they get their milk Beautiful their green butter. Fields. Do you think that there is um, much movement in the direction of animal free foods in India? Uh, are there are there groups of people working to, to bring change as there are in the UK and the US? Oh, for sure. For sure. So uh, we support the Humane Society in India. There's also there's also a group called uh, FAIR, uh, which focuses on farming practices in India. And PETA is, of course, quite active in, in India, and uh, not only through PETA, but they also have many, many, many sort of sister uh, organizations there that are specifically tackling uh, different animal rights uh, issues specific to different kinds of animals. So yes, there is. And of course, there's actually, uh, we see this all the time on, on a billion, but there's so many upstart brands in India. So there's more and more people making, you know, vegan food, vegan alternatives, plant-based alternatives. And I think that what's really interesting is like, you know, different groups of people kind of react differently in India. The funny thing is that the awareness around like things like animal welfare, people already think that, oh, it's great. So the real problem that a lot of these foods tackle for most Indians is their overconsumption, right? Of, of things like meat and dairy and the problems that that's led to across diabetes, heart disease, cancers, et cetera. Obviously there's this huge health food movement and that's showing up in people just eating much more natural foods. And then when it comes to all of the plant-based meats and whatnot, you know, there's obviously uh, there's a growing field of companies. It's really, really exciting. With regards to kind of the cultural aspect of plant-based, obviously much of India is vegetarian, which is, you know, partially plant-based. But the whole kind of vegan philosophy of removing all animal products from the diet, has that existed in Indian culture in any parts of India? Or is it seen as a very much a, a new Western thing? Because I have spoken to many African-American vegans who do have a, the challenge of communicating this to their friends and family and who see it as a very white middle class thing. Oh, it's easy for you as a white middle class person with your bougie lifestyle shopping at Whole Foods where you have the luxury of having an animal-free diet, you know, you have the money to be able to do it. You know, is there that same tension in India? Do a lot of people sort of see it as a Western thing coming in and removing all animal products? No, not at all. Look, so the, the interesting thing is, right, if you look at like the still today, to this date, the vast majority of Indians live in the countryside, right? So obviously we still have massive rapid urbanization. It's the urbanization that's really driving the use of processed foods, the use of all of these, you know, like meats and dairy products, et cetera. It's also the rising wealth, right? So just like any other market, if you travel around Southeast Asia or even China, the food that the lowest, you know, sort of income classes eat actually ends up being fairly plant-based, right? Or maybe there's Maybe there's, you know, there's, there's stews and broths that may have, you know, bones or, you know, or animal products in them, but largely it's a lot of plant-based foods, right? And we see this, you know, all over China, actually, right? And same thing with India. So, you know, in India, the very traditional thing to eat is rice with lentils. And, uh, you know, if you go up to North India, if you go to Himachal Pradesh or uh, into Nepal, where you know you're a, you're in neighborhoods, and you're in towns, and you're in villages, and you're in in monasteries, basically uh, dharamsalas and places like that, where six months of the year they're not accessible because they're snowed in. That's all they eat, right? They eat because you know they can store lentils and rice forever, right? So there is a huge tradition, and it, it, you know it's not so far removed. There are is sort of this concept of pure vegetarianism, not as much veganism in India. And, you know, there's certain classes of, there's sort of uh, obviously connected religions like Jainism, for example, where, you know, they're very specific about, you know, the, the various, they're even more specific than Hindu vegetarians about what they can and cannot eat. So there's a rising, I think there's a rising level of interest in India and, and, and emerges. I don't think of, I don't think people think of it as a Western thing, but they're more looking at this from a health perspective. Sounds amazing. Yeah, I keep saying to class, I'd love to, you know, try and get more content of what we do into Indian yeah. culture and encourage and inspire people to, because obviously, as you say, it's it's obviously an easy sell that eating plant-based, fully plant-based or strict vegetarian in India isn't that culturally unusual. You know, it is something. 
that people would be prepared to do. It, the class thing is an interesting thing because, as you say, usually the, the, the sort of very working class, as we would say in the UK, um, communities don't eat a lot of meat because they can't afford to. And that meat consumption is associated with upward mobility. It's associated with wealth. And so when you say to people, don't eat meat, what are you saying to them? That you want them to be poor? So people have this attitude, and I have it in, in South Africa, where I'm from, yeah. where eating meat is, again is associated with wealth. And so by saying to people, don't eat meat, they become defensive. They're like, what, you're trying to remove our opulence. You're trying to remove our, our sort of, you know, upward mobility, as I said, through society. Because obviously when you have friends and family around and you can serve animal products, you know, a large pig or some kind of, you know, half a goat or something, you will impress your friends and family. And so what am I going to serve to my friends and family? <laughs> like th- that extends to pretty much everywhere, right? You've got... In India, the um, you know the, the 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 fatter the man, right? The more prosperous he is. That always used to be the old world way of looking at things, but I think now increasingly the concept of health is wealth is uh, is really seeping in, is really creeping into culture. I can tell you just from my own personal experience. You know, when I when I became vegan, you know, I loved my like palak paneer and I loved all my vegetarian like Indian dairy paneer cream ghee laden dishes. And it was funny because when I became vegan and I went back and went to Indian restaurants, you know, especially like you go for lunch or something, and I would then get them to swap everything out. So like no butter, no ghee, no paneer, none of that. And I would just eat just the vegetable dishes and, you know, not spread tons of butter on my food. I could walk out of there and I feel great. You know, like I think most of us can relate to like going to an Indian restaurant and feeling really tired and sleepy afterwards. Right. And, and I just was like, wow, like, even Indian food can be really energizing and not leave you feeling tired. And I think that that, I think more and more, right, that it's that notion that's also seeping in, right? We're all crunched for time. We live in this COVID world and everybody's trying to optimize. And, you know, people, people want to be strong. People want to stay healthy. People want to have energy. Uh, and I think that, you know, being vegan, I, this, this old, I, this sort of the, you know, the idea of somebody who's really scrawny to the bones or I think that's gone. You know, I think it's now it's really about, hey, how do you this is about living your life at its best. And I think, you know, one of the ways in which we can inspire change in this lifestyle is to use our talents. And, you know, I would love to talk a bit more about a billion, which is, you know, one of your is your baby. And you created this this fantastic platform. A Billion is the world's fastest growing platform for vegan and sustainable living. With over a million reviews to date, conscious consumers around the world use us daily to decide what to eat and what to buy. So we know better than anyone that sustainability isn't just a fad. Every day, new sustainable businesses are launching. New competitors and players are popping up faster than ever. The customer base has grown too, exponentially. Now, more people than ever are looking to purchase vegan food, cruelty-free makeup, and sustainable fashion. Getting your brand and your products in front of them has become harder and harder. To help you navigate this hyper-competitive environment, we've launched A Billion for Brands. Our premium subscription tools allow you to stand out and get noticed. Your brand and products can be boosted in search results and product recommendations. They'll appear more frequently and more prominently in the app's feed, where members explore and are inspired by sustainable product reviews and posts. With the premium subscription, you can control your profile, ensuring the best images and descriptions tell your brand story and represent your products better. Add commission-free premium purchase links so members can shop immediately on your site and all without having to leave the app. Stay ahead of the pack with a billion for brands. We're ready to grow your business. Are you? Visit brands.abillion.com today. Tell us a little bit about like where did it all come from? What is the where did the idea come from? Especially the name, a billion. It all started from uh, the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, we can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. The business tycoon and TV personality capping his improbable political journey with an astounding upset victory. Donald J. Trump will become the 45th president of the United States, defeating Hillary Clinton in a campaign unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. Donald Trump 
wins the presidency of the United States. He is now going to be called president-elect Donald Trump. He's walking up right now. You see him right there. He's going to be speaking momentarily. He's got his wife there. History has been made. Jake, this is a moment a lot of people are going to remember. I was sitting here in Singapore. I live here in Singapore. I've been out here for seven years. And I spent most of my life growing up in New York City um, and moved here from California. Came out here for my job, you know, and, and like a lot of people, I just, you know, thought that the 2016 election was just going to be another thing. And, and then, you know, we had this guy, Donald Trump, get elected. And it wasn't so much about Donald Trump as much as it was about how the platforms that we all use to communicate and how media had become so polarizing, right? That you had all of these, you know, that we were finally seeing that, wow, journalism doesn't actually, you know, there's no integrity in journalism anymore. You've got basically journal, you've got different kinds of channels for different kinds of journalism effectively, but also just that social media had really been used in such a subversive way to really just, you know, to, 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 to influence people. And then of course, all of the interference from foreign governments and just how all of this had happened on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. I just was in shock. I was sat there and, you know, for the months that followed, I was just blown away by how this could happen. And at that stage of my life, I had kind of gotten to a place where I just really was thinking about what I wanted to do in my life. I'd been working for other people for a while. And, uh, and I just was like, I want to do something about this, you know, and that decision that I made to go vegan really in my life became this North star. And it became this thing that just fueled me in my thirties. It made me feel like every single thing that I did was a choice that I, every choice that I made, whether it was as a consumer or as an individual was a much more compassionate choice, was a choice that was expressed, you know, expressed my values and my principles a little bit, you know, and when it's, when it's such a simple thing is what you eat, right? You're constantly thinking about food throughout the day. So being vegan is this opportunity to really just live your entire life aligned with your principles and values. And I was in an industry where I felt like for a while that I kind of checked my values and principles at the door. And I was an investment banker and in finance and you know, and it wasn't bad. I mean, I, the work was great, you know, and, and very challenging and very intellectually stimulating. And it wasn't bad. It wasn't evil or anything like that. But I just felt like, wow, okay, I want to create something that inspires people. I really felt like social media could be rebuilt. These ideas of creating habits for people, like just this mindless scrolling could be repurposed into creating mindful scrolling right? And mindfulness. And I really felt like the planet and positivity and animals deserved a voice, deserved almost like a digital voice. So I, you know, in thinking through what I wanted to create, I had for a while had been thinking about creating a vegan shoe brand, because that was something that I missed was like my beautiful leather shoes when, you know, from when I was, when I was in my twenties. And I was really thinking about that. And I felt, you know, at the time I was like, there's so many people who are going to start up in this movement. There's going to be so many companies that are going to get started. If I could maybe build something that helped all of those entrepreneurs around the world succeed, and it made it easier for people around the world to actually experience this lifestyle and connect it back to sustainability and helping the planet and helping animals that I felt like there was an opportunity maybe to create social media for a better planet and get rid of the subversive stuff and focus on inspiring people, focus on making it easier for people to live this lifestyle. And I truly believe that if we could get people, a billion people, even a million people, but then, you know, everything magnifies that our logo is actually 10 to the ninth, I wish I had a sticker here or something, but it, our logo is 10 to the ninth, which is a billion, but you know, it's 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 times, right? It's that small. It starts with a small group of 10 people and that becomes a hundred and becomes a thousand and becomes 10,000 and a hundred thousand and beyond. And it was this idea that, Hey, we could start with just a small group of people and people creating content that helped other people find things. And if we could help people find things around the world, we can then become this platform, which became the voice for the consumer and advocated on behalf of the consumer and help transform business and industry and 
create more vegan options. A billion is a digital platform for the sustainability movement. We're building a global community of people sharing recommendations and reviews of vegan food and sustainable products to create lasting impact. Extremely helpful. It shows you not just vegan restaurants, but also vegan options at non-vegan restaurants. I'm a huge foodie. I can see what's available when I travel. It makes me feel more connected to the plant-based community. It does so much more than you just talking about food on Instagram. They give you a dollar that you can give to a partner. I want everyone to know about this app because they're going to be taking pictures of the food anyways. And now they can help sanctuaries all over the planet. It's just a win-win for everybody. Every post on a billion creates real impact. Thanks to our members, we have donated over half a million dollars and counting to save animal lives, educate young girls, feed children, and plant trees. Every dollar counts, and every dollar can actually affect real change. Each of our rescue partners has been selected based on this collective mission of making the world more plant-based. A billion empowers conscious consumers to make the world better. It helps them share discoveries with like-minded peers in their hometowns and all around the world. And it empowers them to help others through our unique giving program. A billion helps make doing good for oneself, for the animals and the planet, easy and rewarding. Join the Abillion community and let's work together to help inspire a billion people to live more sustainably. So look, there, there, were, like, there were a lot of little things, bits and pieces there the opportunity around social media and e-commerce and all of that. And I like to think really big. So I was like, wow, this is a huge, this is, this is a, is an opportunity for us to create a business that can hopefully help so many people create businesses, you know, and, and bringing a team together that creates a platform that hopefully one day will fuel and, and, you know, help the movement. So I just got started. And that was that was 2017. Then by my birthday, uh, right after my birthday, at the beginning of the year, I, um, I, I, I went back and resigned and said, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I want to help a billion people around the world go vegan. And my boss kind of just scratched his head. <laughs> he was like, What are you where are you going? Who are you going to go work for? And I was like, no, it's not about that. I want to like do this. And, you know, and, and so it's been four years now since we, we started. Mm, on that. It's incredible. And it's been really inspiring to see it grow. And I love, you know, on your About Us page, it says we're a team of tech geeks and sustainability warriors building an ecosystem to inspire and connect people and businesses around the world. And I also particularly love the team page, which I also would li uh, like to say is beautifully diverse. It's so great to see lots of women in there, lots of yeah. different people of loads of different ethnicities involved in this project. And for me, this is the this is the rainbow tribe that I think there's a, an American Thanks, Indian Thank uh, you. Uh, Thank you. philosophy. Yes, it's just so good to see. It's inspiring to see, especially in today's world where things do feel very uh, one-sided when it comes to sort of equality and diversity. And, you know, it's truly that rainbow tribe that's talked about in that ancient North American Indian philosophy, which is about that there is this tribe of people that will come in the future who will change the world. And it's a people of, of lots of different ethnicities and they're the rainbow tribe. And that's who I believe who the vegan community are. We are a diverse group of people from every edge of the planet working to shift the world in, in and awaken the world to our true compassionate nature, which is, which is, I believe, our true nature. Because when you look at children and you look at the way we behave in our most unadulterated form without being influenced by our very unwell society, we are kind, we are compassionate, we love and nurture and we want to grow and we're gardeners and we are creators. Our destructive nature, I think, has come from just the way that we have become uh, as a people through the way we live, the way we've become so disconnected from each other, disconnected from Gaia, disconnected from the earth, disconnected from our spirituality or our mother or whoever whoever you worship or don't worship. You know what I mean? That, that sort of that spiritual well-being. And I think that's come at a cost, which is a very capitalist, very selfish, self-centered world. And there is um, something that, you know, I often talk about in this podcast, which is a study that was done with children in the US in the 50s. And they were given this long list of things to talk about what they wanted to be as an adult. And they were ranked in order of popularity. And in the 50s, the number one thing was kindness, to be a kind person, a gentle and kind person. That was the number one thing out of like 10,000 children or something. They did it again recently in the last sort of decade. No, I don't want to even hear what it was. What it was, well, it was famous. Um, and, and fame and the irony the irony is oh, is that you know fame and and uh, you know what self-appreciate not self-appreciation but like acknowledgement from the outside 
shows the world that we live in today, where people are so desperate to be seen because they're not feeling that love and that connection that we need as a community. And that's what's beautiful about the vegan community. So thank you for creating this incredible platform. And I'm really excited to hear about how it works, because obviously I know how it works, but our audience might not. They might not have downloaded the app. How does it actually function? What do we do? And, and how does yeah. the whole thing need to connect? First and foremost, we want to make it really easy for people around the world to discover vegan options, more sustainable options, right? And we are very, we want to be very welcoming to anyone. So 60% of uh, our, the folks that have signed up and are using our app month in, month out are actually, they're not vegan or vegetarian. They're meat eaters who are really looking to just you know, experience the lifestyle. It's it's very simple. It's user-generated content. So it's, you know, in many ways, it's like Instagram or Facebook in the way that people, all of the content that you see on the platform has actually been created by people, ordinary people. So we want to be the voice of the people. We value your opinion. And we think that the opinion of a customer of a business is the best opinion. So, uh, so, you know, for those of us that have ever used review platforms like TripAdvisor or Yelp, uh, you know, or any of the other sort of uh, review platforms, we started there. We started in 2017 by creating sort of a review platform that helped people find restaurants. And one of the problems that we saw was in the restaurant industry, if you're using a, a review site to find a restaurant to eat at or often all the content that you're seeing has been written by people that had an experience that you can never have. Right, there. Ninety-nine percent of what's on restaurant menus is not vegan or vegetarian, and so most of the reviews and most of the content you see online is not really applicable to the thing, the one thing that you might be able to have. So we did a whole bunch of research, and we found that there's very few. Of course, there's no don't even need to do research, but we we wanted to really drill down on what the numbers were. We found that, like at best, in most cities around the world, one to two percent on average of options on restaurant menus were plant-based, were vegan. And so we started with this idea that, hey, instead of restaurant reviews, we actually do dish reviews. So we make it very visual and we show people food and you can then create a meritocracy for vegan food. You can find vegan food from steakhouses. You can find vegan food at Japanese restaurants. You can find vegan food from vegan restaurants. So we started there and, and basically it, it started with, you know, the first post here in Singapore. And we started talking to people about it and, uh, we started getting more and more people around the world, kind of just, you know, one person here, one person there, um, starting to contribute content to it. And then in 2018, we did something interesting where we really thought about, okay, well, you know, all of these reviews, all of this stuff, like how do we build a real community and tribe around this? So we actually started contacting uh, animal sanctuaries around the world, specifically farm animal sanctuaries and uh, started connecting with farm animal sanctuaries. And we basically created a donation mechanism on the platform where every time you eat something vegan, we reward you. So we felt, we felt very strongly that we, we didn't want to spend money marketing, you know, on social media and we wanted to really build a great tribe and group of people. So we actually took our marketing dollars and we created this donation platform. So if you're if you're eating something vegan, or you're choosing something vegan, we put a dollar in your pocket to actually donate to take care until to save lives and, and take care of animals. So that was just our way of then again connecting folks, often folks in cities, back with the impact. And that's something that you can do on our platform. It's very unique to our platform, which is we help you know if you eat, go and you eat something vegan or you purchase a vegan product, we back it up with a donation credit. And we expanded. So we expanded into consumer products. We expanded into packaged foods. Today, you'll, you know, if you're looking at plant-based meat, we mostly often hear about the same one or two or three brands, depending on where, where in the world we are. But just in the category of plant-based meat, we have like 15,000 options from around the world. So it's really fascinating. I love going on the platform and seeing what people in Chile are eating and seeing what people in Argentina are eating, vegan food in Argentina, like who would have thought, right? But it's fascinating. And uh, we're just, you know, there's people now all around the world that are contributing this information and then they're recruiting people to, you know, to use the platform and it'll help you find food, it'll help you find products, it'll help you find the products at retailers. And, and now it's even helping you purchase those things because 
we're working with companies and companies are putting in, you know, the, the links to go and purchase the item online, or they're putting in retailer information. So you know where you can go to buy something if you're sitting in the UK or you're sitting in Singapore or Australia. For me, going back to the, the earlier on conversation, the vegan shoes, what I really want to do is build a platform that helps the next thousand and 10,000 entrepreneurs get their footing in this space. We think that, you know, we think that the, the, uh, the vegan market and the sustainability market, we think that we want how we really think about how do we help somebody like, you know, who has, who's making sourdough bread at home on the weekends and wants to sell that or has a side project, a side hustle. How do we help them turn it into a business? So we're creating a, the first ever consumer to consumer marketplace focused on everything vegan, plant-based, everything focused on sustainability. That's going to be launching the first half of next year. Super, Amazing. Super, we're excited for that. Yeah. I mean, we're probably going to pilot it in one market, get, you know, work out the kinks and then, and then try to work on expanding globally into the UK and the US and other markets, but really excited about 2022. So that's really then going to take our platform, take a billion to the next level where, you know, people can actually buy and sell any user, anyone can buy or sell things on a billion. We want to donate a million dollars to animal rescue organizations around the world, on the front line, saving animals, taking care of them, rehabilitating them, raising awareness. Every time you make a purchase, a dish at a restaurant or a product from a store, you're casting a vote. We wanted to show businesses around the world that one out of every 25 dishes on their menu being plant-based isn't good enough. By creating a dish review platform, we create a lot of really interesting data points to chefs, to owners of businesses, showing them what people are saying about their vegan options to compete for your vegan dollar. We are the fastest growing platform for the plant-based community, packaged food product, cosmetic. We wanna be the leading platform that connects people with the information that they really need to make better choices. Join the Abillion Veg movement and let's work together to make the world more plant-based. It's fantastic. Even my mum, who's 63 now, I think, she's on it, she's vegan. She's oh, thank you. Every day, her food, things she eats, things she buys in the supermarket in South Africa. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah, she's, um, I, I need to, I was just looking for her username. I couldn't figure it out because I was going to bring it up on the screen. But yeah, she's posted hundreds of things on there. And you're she kidding me. You're kidding me. Yeah, well, that, that gamification is such a fantastic thing. And that's kind of what Instagram have done with the scrolling. They've kind of gamified it because it's a bit like a slot machine. You pull it and you don't know what you're going to get. I'm sure you've seen The Social Dilemma. Yeah. You know, yeah, that yeah, film really horrified me. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked, is being measured. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. Exactly what image you stop and look at, for how long you look at it. Oh yeah, seriously, for how long you look at it. They know when people are lonely, they know when people are depressed, they know when people are looking at photos of your ex-romantic partners, they know what you're doing late at night, they know the entire thing. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, or what kind of neuroses you have, what your personality type is like. They have more information about us than has ever been imagined in human history. It is unprecedented. I knew a lot of yep. the stuff in my mind. I knew that social networks were creating this terrible polarizing effect politically, spiritually, religiously, perhaps. And it was creating a lot of division. And, you know, with the recent exposure with the whistleblower with Facebook, yeah. it showed that Facebook knows that creating anger in its audience drives engagement, which makes money. And of that course. creating those negative emotions actually continues to drive sales. So oh, sure. what a fantastic space to be able to have a social network, which everything is, to nourish people and give back to society. And we need to see more of that because I think that these social networks have taken the power and you know they hold so much power. They have so many sort of engaged, billions and billions of engaged users every day on a sort of mindless slot machine of what we call doom scrolling, where you're just sort of like caught in this never-ending scroll of cats oh, yeah, and sure. trees and random things. And 
with regards to kind of growth, and obviously, you know, when we want to create something new, we have to be able to have an all-star, something we're heading towards. Are you seeing the numbers? Are you seeing the growth that you want in this platform? Or do you feel like there's a long way to go still? Are you, like, where are you at the moment with regards where you started in 2017 and where you are now? Are you seeing enough of a trajectory or do you feel like there needs to be more to sort of push it? I remember when we started up in 2017 and I started talking to uh, people, friends, investors about this. I remember being at a lunch in, two, in, in May of 2018, being in New York City and, and at a lunch with an old friend and colleague, much, much, much older guy who, who's done very well in his life. And um, uh, he ended up investing in us back then. And I just remember, you know, like me going through my presentation and and the model and, and all these things that I had prepared, right? And projections and whatnot. And I'd come to the meeting all very prepared, right? And and I just remember him, he, you know, he, he told me at the end, he's like, okay, come over to my apartment, right? I, you know, because he lived around the corner and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sign the docs and this is great. But he just, he, he told me at the very end, he's like, Vikas, just, just remember, it's going to take a lot longer than you think. And I just looked at him and I was just like, yeah, okay, yeah, thanks. Uh, like, thanks for the money, you know, thanks for the investment and uh, let me be on my way. But those words, you know, those words of wisdom and those words from oh, that only can only come from experience, right? I don't know why they, they just always reverberate through me because it does take a long time. We are trying to get people to shift off of things that they're addicted to. I don't know if you have a spouse or a family member that's addicted to social media and we won't name any names here from my side, but you know, like I know I like family members who like, you can, you know, ask them a question three times and they're still glued to their screen. Right. And whether they're on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook. And so these, these, these are the modern day addictions. Right. And I think 10 years, 20 years from now, we're going to actually be thinking like, wow, tobacco was not anything as bad as Facebook. And, but that's just the word, that's where we are, right? So for us, I think, A, we need to be really focused on the people, the users and the, the people that are, we are, that are, what, what can we learn from the folks that are joining our platform and using the platform? How can we make the product really, really great for them? How can we make it fun and fast and engaging? How can we shift that mindless scrolling to mindfulness, right? And for the time, the 15 or 20 minutes that they spend on our app every day, how do we make that experience valuable for them so they feel inspired by these choices that they're making? So, you know, the next time they go to a restaurant, they choose something vegan or they choose a restaurant where they can get a great vegan option for their friends, right? So we want to just be there to support that journey. We crossed a million downloads recently. We crossed a million US dollars donated last week. Wow, congratulations. Is, thank you, which is super exciting, uh, I think, for a company at our stage. I mean, you know, look, it's it's... It's just something that I really feel passionate about. And going back to a billion, I hope one day that number is going to be a billion dollars, that we'll have donated a billion dollars. You know, there, there's no reason some of these bigger platforms can't do that today, but they don't. I don't know why. You know, we really feel like there's a, a real opportunity to create something that challenges these platforms. It doesn't have to be as big. I think the interesting thing is, you know, is more and more people are quitting the big platforms to find their tribe to find the tribe that, you know, that connects them to the, what they're passionate about, whether that's baking sourdough bread or that's cycling and, you know, platforms like Strava or that's, you know, what, what they heat and what they consume and, you know, sustainability. And it just goes back to, we just really think that it's a long-term game. It's going to take a really long time, but the planet and animals and, you know, our own lives, our, our degree of compassion and empathy to each other, these are things that are really worth fighting for. Absolutely. And it's, uh, as you say, it's a long road, but it's definitely worth treading because there's a lot at stake in our future. With regards to social impact and being involved in social change with technology, there's a lot of people out there who have little apps and you know websites and blogs, things that are quite small, and they're frustrated by the lack of growth. They haven't got investment. I get asked all the time, how can I make more of an impact? I don't feel like I'm doing enough, you know, What's your advice to people like that who, who, who really want to do big things, but they just are really struggling to, to get the support they need to, to grow their, their idea? I'm part of, I'm on that boat. <laughs> do you have some <laughs> advice for me? I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, it's really hard, right? I mean, whenever you're the challenger, it's really, really hard. Um, and, uh, 
we're trying to build a platform to help people, but we're competing against a lot of other platforms. And, um, and even for the businesses that we want to attract and for the people that just feel so natural, like these are the people that would care about how we have to figure out, we have to compete and our product needs to get good enough, right? Um, look, when we started, we didn't have any money. Um, I bootstrapped the whole thing for a year and a half. And, um, and it was really painful. And I kind of felt like I needed to go through that pain to really come out the other side, believing that I could do this, that I wanted to do this, that I was prepared to do this. And, uh, you know, and I had to have those hard conversations with my wife and, and, and my family. And uh, it was really, it was really challenging. It's still really, really challenging. And, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges is especially as you scale and your business starts to develop, people look to you uh, for answers. And I have to go like my Mondays, I have to go from meeting to meeting, talking about completely different subjects and pretend that I have some answers, but you know, I don't, I don't pretend, I just ask questions and I just think through things as best as I can, but it, it is really grueling and, and frustrating the journey. And I guess maybe my advice would be, so I was a sole founder. I wish I had a co-founder. I wish I had like a technical co-founder because I'm not, I, I'm not a programmer. I'm not a designer. I, I, I didn't even know what user experience research was, right? I didn't know what a user experience was. Like I didn't know any of this. I didn't know anything about tech when I started this company. And I was very honest and humble about that. And I felt like in the beginning, all I needed was a very, very good junior engineer. So I enrolled myself in a coding boot camp. So I could not so I could like become some wonderkind coder and do this myself. But I just was like, okay, I don't know the first thing about hiring a software engineer. So if I sit in a room full of people who are trying to learn how to become software engineers, maybe I could f figure out who are like the best one or two people in the class. And maybe I could kind of like convince them to join me. And so that's what happened, actually. I spent the three months. I wanted to rip my hair out. I swear I would come home from class. I was On day two, I was already gone. I was already so behind. Like, I had no idea what was going on, right? And this was three months. But, you know, that was a very humbling experience. So I'd say that, look, one of the, the one piece of advice I could get, give you is the chances are if you have an idea, there's probably someone somewhere in the world who has a similar idea. It might make sense to partner with them. You know, you just never know. The guys, uh, Ryan uh, Ryan and Barumal, who are the founders of Perfect Day, they met online. They didn't know each other, right? And today they're running this, you know, this massive, one of the most successful startups in our space, right? Disrupting the milk industry. So anything is possible. You might meet your co-founder who you don't know online somewhere. Right? Getting that support, I think, that's the that's yeah. key. Uh, I can speak for, for that as well. Klaus and I, our co-founders together. I'm the tech one. He's the sort of sciencey one. And, you know, we we perform a, a good partnership. It's not always easy when you have very, very different people working together. But it does, it, you know, those long, late nights, staying up, writing presentations and working with clients and trying to create some cut through when things don't seem to be going well. And hey, I'm getting that support. So I, I definitely echo that advice, getting getting a co-founder, finding someone, you know, two pairs of shoulders are better than just one, two pairs of eyes, because obviously it does get lonely when you do things on your own and the social justice aspect of what we do is difficult and is painful and it does take its toll and, and having someone else carry the load with you. So I do also concur, get out there, find yourself a co-founder, but also like find your tribe as well. You know, if you have a, an idea for something and you're working in isolation, it's very hard to keep up the momentum. That leads me nicely, nicely onto my next question, which is momentum. This is a very challenging world we live in. We've just, well, we haven't left the pandemic. We're still in the midst of a global pandemic. There are a lot of people still dying. You know, the world, the climate breakdown is very real. It's destroying habitats across the globe. Despite all of that, what keeps you hopeful about our future as a species? You know, what are the things that you look at or look to books or films or people that really give you hope that we're heading in the right direction? Look, so much, uh, so much gives me hope. You know, I don't know where to start. There's obviously a lot of destruction happening all around the world. As much as we're kind of, you know, we're, we spent a good chunk of our, our time today talking about social media and how, why we think it's so challenging. But at the same time, one of the things that's really disrupted the world or disrupted these, um, these big institutions that we could never get inside before, we didn't know what was happening. We didn't 
know why there was all this deforestation. Nobody had any ideas that there were cattle farms in the Amazon. And, you know, what's really going on behind the scenes is the advent of, you know, technology and, and uh, how easy it is for anybody to become a photographer or videographer, you know, or, or put and put information out there. We're finally, we're suddenly in an era and in an age where governments no longer run media. You remember Time Magazine was effectively founded by the U.S. government, the propaganda, right? So, you know, and this is going back a long, long, long time. So we now finally have this information age where information is being rapidly shared and spread around the world. Nobody can keep it in check, right? Not even the Chinese government can really keep it in check, right, as much as they try. And I think that that is one of the things that really, um, as much as it, it can be difficult because some of that information creates a lot of problems. It's also extremely uplifting to see how many people care and, you know, and, and see that you know, there's no hiding from it. So governments have to change. Companies have to change. They're being held more accountable. That's one. Two, I think that this pandemic has really uprooted people's lives. I, one of the things that I see that, that we don't talk about enough is how it's uprooted our home lives. A lot of the dissatisfaction that people have, people are not necessarily correlating it to the fact that they've turned their homes into offices, right? So there's no separation there, right? You know, I think that, again, you know, uh, that's going to change. We're seeing so many companies, so many founders, so many entrepreneurs around the world to give you a sense of it. And, you know, it's the early innings of this vegan movement, but we have 250,000 vegan products across 50,000 brands. Globally, that's food and that's beauty and that's apparel. 50,000 brands, right, that are, that are making vegan products around the world. And that's just in the first couple of years of, of, of our platform, you know, that's going to go to 250 and a million one day. So there's all of this entrepreneurship happening. There's all of these people that are coming up with creative solutions. There's a, a huge back to basics world forming, right, where people are trying to not only... I truly believe that sometimes the greatest technological advancement is going back to the basics, right? Yes. And, and we see this more and more and, you know, having this appreciation for how indigenous cultures live around the world and, uh, and, and that back to basics approach uh, is, is really remarkable, um, whether it's for the way that we eat or the way that we heal or the way that we even communicate. So, it's, it's just really an exciting, I think it's a really exciting time for, for the world. I'm not as pessimistic about, you know, as, as sometimes you go to some of these climate conferences and they say, oh, well, the world is going to blow up or destroy, you know, self, the destroy button. I think one of the remarkable things, uh, one of the, I read an article in the New York Times maybe about eight or nine months ago, and it was talking about the white rhinoceros, right? And, and you would know this, obviously, you're, you're given your background from South Africa. And, uh, and, and it's ta- talks, it talked about basically how this animal basically has gone. I don't know if it, I don't remember if it's gone extinct or it was about to go extinct or there's just two of them or something left in the world or something. But how science is basically creating the technology, how us people who are responsible for the demise of this animal are also responsible for potentially bringing it back from extinction. And that we have the we have the ability to do that, right? Now, it would be wonderful if we didn't destroy the animal in the first place, but we have something unique that gives us the opportunity that's a little different than what everyone else. I mean, animals are fantastic. Animals have this very symbiotic relationship with nature and each other. Unfortunately, us humans make things very complicated, but we also have our own unique talents that like, you know, like bringing this white rhinoceros back uh, from extinction. So it, I'm just, I think that uh, for me, I'm, uh, I'm a diehard optimist and a realist. And it's exciting how more and more people around the world are taking action. Absolutely. There's beautiful, beautiful sort of simplicity in, in taking the path away from that kind of destructive nature, which is very compelling, right? Which is a sort of capitalist, consumerist lifestyle, which is buy more, create more, be more, be bigger, let's go back to basics and, you know, return to our, our roots as sort of, you know, more simple people, which, which really is where happiness lies when our lives are overloaded with too much, too many possessions, too much technology, too much option, you know, choice paralysis is not enjoyable when we have this life around us. But 
Thank you for sharing those thoughts. They're, they're really insightful and it's, you know, food for thought, as we might say. But to wrap things up, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, obviously you don't eat the pig because you're vegan. <laughs> if you're stuck on this desert island, I could give you one vegan dish, one music album and one book. What would you Ooh, take? Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my, these are all three very hard questions. Okay. So my, my favorite, favorite Indian dish that my mom makes really well uh, is, is called Chana Batura. And it's basically like a chickpea or garbanzo bean stew with lots of spices, mango powder. It's delicious. Yeah, I'm sure anybody who's eaten Indian food at restaurant probably had it before. But then a batura is this like um, deep fried bread. It's a little thicker uh, than your typical like Indian fried bread, but it's so delicious. You eat the two things together with like a sprinkle of lemon, zest of lemon and freshly chopped onions. It's, it's, it's heaven. And, uh, and so I can, I can eat that. I can literally eat that dish every single day. Uh, there've been part, there've been times in my life where I have eaten that dish probably every day living in India for, you know, three weeks, four weeks at a time. <laughs> okay. So, uh, favorite album. Oh, wow. Okay. Talking head, stop making sense. That's, uh, that's one of my favorite albums and naive melody specifically that song uh this must be the place is is my fa- is my favorite song it was uh it was it was uh, the song at my wedding for my wife and i favorite book wow a book that i can i can read over and over and over again that's so hard it would have to be either the odyssey by homer or uh the count of monte cristo by Alexander Dumas. I, I just love that book. I think I, I you know, I, I've probably read it at least 20 or 30 times in my life. So almost close enough to almost once a year. It's been a few years, but it's just got everything. It's got love and it's got passion. It's got revenge and you know, all the high notes of, of classic literature. Fantastic. Mr. Vickerskog, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. What a pleasure to hear your story, my friend. It's really a pleasure and thank you, Robbie, for what you guys are doing with Plant-Based News, for what you and Klaus have done. It's, it's amazing, amazing, amazing to see all the growth uh, and all of the insights. And uh, honestly, we really look up to you guys and all of your reporting and what you're doing. It's just amazing how much you guys are doing with the team that you have. And, you know, God bless you. And, and thank you very much for everything that you guys are doing. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next time with more veganism, food, fashion, animals, and everything in between.